back to Plato's Cave. With me today, I have Sukaina Hirji from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, she's a philosopher who is specializing in ethics and ancient philosophy, and I've invited her on the podcast to discuss a very recent paper, uh, Outrage and the Bounds of Empathy. So thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so like I was just remarking I recently read your paper, which was uh, published in October of 2022. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Super recent as far as like philosophy. Yeah, papers go. Sure. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's very rare that like I get to read a paper that was published within the past year, you know, that like right. the author might remember something about. <laughs> like, I mean, we'll see how much I remember, but... <laughs> That's true. I mean, I send out invitations all the time and I'm thinking like, oh, this was like 2017 or whatever. It's right. like super recent. And the pe- like the people yeah. will email back like, I'm sorry, I would love to talk, but I have no recollection of what I wrote in that paper. Well, and I mean, I'm sure you know this, but you know, the sort of from the time when you start a paper or even finish the paper to when mm. it actually comes out in print, there's usually such a lag time. So, yeah. <laughs> And by the time like it finally gets published, you're so sick of like even looking at it that you can't bear no, to think about true. it. And I, you know, I also have a bad memory. So I often have the experience where I have to actually reread the paper just to remind myself what I was even doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, don't worry, because I reread the paper just last Perfect. night. So <laughs> one of us remembers. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe I can tell you what you're up to if you forget. <laughs> Um, I was actually, I wanted, before we talk about like the paper in general, um, yeah. we were chatting how this is kind of um, not like a recently burgeoning area of philosophy, but it yeah. seems like a lot of kind of people are diving into this. What, what I was curious, like what made you interested in anger as like a philosophical topic? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I think there are a bunch of things and maybe some of this is sort of like reflective of the more general interest. Um, I mean, some of it is personal. Like, I just am somebody who's very prone to anger. Uh, Same. And it's, yeah. <laughs> and it's something that, you know, I think um, I have complicated feelings about because I think on the one hand, you know, it's it really serves me in a lot of ways. I think on the other hand, it's really not um, always helpful. And a lot of that sort of tension is kind of what I'm working through in the paper. It's just the ways that I think anger can be both really valuable and um, at the same time damaging or destructive in certain ways. And so I think there's that, but then I also think there's sort of like more broadly sort of a cultural moment where you're seeing a lot of kind of collective public expressions of anger in political context. So, you know, I think the Me Too movement, I think during the pandemic, like the shooting of George Floyd and sort of like protests around that. Um, I also think just the sort of like more general discourse around kind of cancel culture um, on social media. I think all of that has sort of like brought some of the kind of like roles of anger and kind of public civil discourse like to the surface in a way that I think has just um, maybe reinvigorated a bit like our attention towards it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, I, that, that sounds, you know, all very plausible to me. And also like for, for myself on a personal level, it's, it's, um, it has to be like one of the most common negative emotions that I feel. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, like I, I, I mentioned, I read this in a, a seminar last semester and I was just like loving every paper. Cause I was like, okay, yeah. I, I've got to figure this out for myself. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because I don't have anything resembling like a structured relationship to anger. So, you know what I mean? So like, it's such a live issue. um, Yeah. And I really feel the, I mean, I really, you know, I I think I use a lot of my work as like therapy. (laughs) Like I really (laughs) believe the sort of like therapeutic role of philosophy. And so, yeah, I think, you know, 
I find that like writing a paper about something is often like the most helpful thing for me, just working through my own relationship mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. Like I'll figure out what I actually think about something when I'm figuring out the outline or actually writing it or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you know what? That that sounds right to me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm really I'm looking forward to to discussing um, the paper because it it um, you know you you draw on a lot of like recent um, uh, examples from the news, a lot of like. Uh, recent sort of just interpersonal examples and it made me think of a ton of just past experiences that I've had too oh cool uh, yeah mm -hmm. no I'm glad to hear that yeah no it was a very um and I and I liked the the um kind of style of writing it 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 didn't commit that philosophical crime of being interesting but unreadable so, yeah <laughs> so, so, no so. I'm glad yeah I do try to write papers that people can read <laughs> yes no it's it's I, I've noticed that recent papers do such a better job than past ones I mean you know, even as early as like I won't say the name because I don't need to say the name of the, the yeah. paper but yeah. it was like 2003 and it was literally yeah. unreadable yeah 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 I mean I do yeah I, I've sort of enjoyed seeing the ways that the field has changed in the last decade or so like I think Partly there's sort of just more interest in kind of social issues brought like the social world broadly construed. Um, but then I think, yeah, there's sort of a bit more openness to like different styles and ways of um, sort of developing an argument. And that has felt really nice to me because I think mm -hmm. like when I was in grad school, I remember there was this kind of like way that a lot of people were writing papers where, you know, you would name a view and then, you know, you'd have a sort of like technical <laughs> machinery and you know, not that there's anything wrong with that sort of style, but I think it's nice to see that there's just sort of like different um, models now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so actually, I had my first question is about the yeah, second yeah. sentence in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, which you'll remind me of. <laughs> yes, which I, I'll read you the first two sentences. Um, so you, you begin the paper by saying, often when we are angry, we are angry at someone who has hurt us. Our anger is a protest against a perceived mistreatment, and its function is to hold the person accountable for their offense. So I was, I mean, I, I think that I was interpreting this right. But when you say that, like, often our anger is a protest against the perceived mistreatment, I take it that like insofar as we're talking about anger as primarily an internal emotion and not an expression of anything, the protest is also sort of like this internal reaction right. against the mistreatment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really nice sort of question because, you know, people do distinguish between sort of like feeling an emotion and expressing an emotion. And then there's a question of like, is the function, you know, in, in the case of like resentment, if we think about it as a kind of protest, is that only when it's expressed or is it also um, mm. the sort of feeling? And I think it, you know, it, it depends a little bit on, you know, what you think the protest is. So if you think like, you know, what part of what the protest is, is just a protest within yourself about mm. sort of like, um, you know, sort of expression of self-respect or standing up for yourself or like recognizing for yourself that you've been mistreated. Then I think that, you know, even without the expression, there is that. If you think of resentment more as a kind of sanctioning behavior where you're sort of like, um, you know, it has to do with the offender, then of course, like the expression is going to matter. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at least this seems true for me. It, it seems like oftentimes when I'm genuinely feeling an emotion, at least maybe to a certain degree, it, yeah. it is going to be like very intrinsically leaky into yeah, the, sure. the real world. No, I mean, I think we all know that feeling where like you're upset with somebody and you don't want to like <laughs> make it their problem or talk to them about it. But then they're like, why are you acting all weird? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, or you just have to kind of like get away from them or something. And then exactly. even that is like a yeah. manifestation. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 
Totally. Um, yeah. So I guess um, maybe I'll just say at the top what I take some of your like main goals in the paper to be. Um, sure. yeah. Cool. Okay. Because it seems like there are um, four main ones. So uh, you want to develop an account of outrage anger and contrast it with other kinds of anger, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and then show the benefits of outrage anger, especially in certain contexts, uh, but highlight that it comes with these really kind of um, uh, unshakable epistemic and prudential costs, and then kind of conclude with um, broad theorizing about when it might be more wise to adopt this. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, which I I, I liked. There was no... Um, no chaff in the paper like it was it was you weren't you weren't like waiting into some you know whatever and like adding three or four extra pages so it was yeah, very, uh, yeah. <laughs> the pages were worthwhile it. yes <laughs> yeah I mean it's funny because you know it's a paper where um I was just trying to think through again like my own sort of relationship to anger mm. and I was really thinking about these sort of like you know cancel culture kind of moments where you know you think like screw all men or screw all white people or like whatever it is. And, you know, sort of thinking about like in my own relationships in my sort of like friend groups, my community is just like the ways that people sort of use anger and sort of uh, martial anger collectively in these contexts. And so, yeah, you know, in a way the paper, um, it's not the kind of paper in moral philosophy where my goal is to like come up with a prescription, you know, I'm not sort of like trying to argue like we ought to X or we ought not to Y. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, like, uh, you know, I really appreciate your sort of characterization of what I'm doing, because in some ways, like, I'm just exploring, you know, I'm just sort of like asking a question. And, you know, I do sort of try to like develop a kind of um, some conceptual resources around anger. But ultimately, I'm really just exploring this kind of like ambivalent nature of this kind of anger. Um, and th that sort of bringing out that sort of ambivalence is much more important to me than coming up with any kind of like clear uh, prescriptions about when and how we should feel outrage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I mean, that that really tracks my um, like journey through the anger seminar. Yeah. At first, you know, like I I came yeah. in like trying to just the wheels of like justification yeah. started off where I'm like, oh, totally. I, I'm angry all the time. So it must be yeah. right. So I was like looking yeah. for all these ways to defend it. And then yeah. like, you know, you read like Nussbaum and Seneca and you're like, yeah. uh, and, and Pettigrove. And I'm like, oh, this sure. is a pretty dumb emotion. You know what I mean? Yeah. I should try to get rid of it. But then you think about it and it's like, well, no, it kind of works well in a lot of these contexts. And yeah. then, but it's hard to define like in, in any sort of systematic way. Yeah. So I, you know what I mean? Like I kind of like ended up with, yeah, like you said, like a lot of ambivalence about like, well, it just, I don't know. It seems like more wise at certain times and more unwise at other times. And I don't really know that I can do any better than that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. You know, it's just something, you know, it's kind of true of a lot of my work right now is that I'm really interested in these kind of like uh, ambivalent responses that we have towards things and what they kind of tell us about the world. And, you know, I, I just more and more sort of like am inclined to think that there's like real philosophical progress in just describing mm. <laughs> that kind of ambivalence or tension and sort of like noticing that in a lot of these cases are just kind of competing reasons and there's not going to be some clear determinate answer or, or at least not like a universal one. Um, mm. Mm. Yeah, totally. I mean, that maybe I'll maybe I'll just table it for now but like I, I yeah. I'm really interested in your thoughts about the intrinsic versus instrumental reasons uh debate yeah. around anger um but maybe sure. I'll maybe I'll flag that because I think maybe it's better to get some like things on the table first before sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. cool so um so well I guess 
a question for you because there's kind of like the the case of um Janelle Miller is central in the paper yeah yeah do you want and a lot of like the quotes I have of you discussing different types of anger will use that case do you want to give like a brief synopsis of it and then I can ask a question yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I, um, I've noticed in a lot of my work recently, I just, I'm, I'm really, uh, drawn towards using kind of like real life cases. Um, because I think it's really helpful to have an example when we do philosophy, you know, um, but I also really find for me, a lot of thought experiments tend to feel a little bit too thin. Like they don't feel like real world examples. They don't tend to have the kind of like, I mean, by design, they don't tend to kind of be quite as messy. Um, and I also think sometimes it can feel a little bit, especially when you're talking about the social world and especially when it comes to sort of like marginalized groups, it can feel a little bit sort of, um, uh, I don't know, uncomfortable to kind of like be creating these thought experiments um, about cases of like oppression or domination. And so, yeah, I, I've, you know, really been drawn to real world examples and I was looking for a kind of case of anger and I had picked up her memoir because I had read her um, sort of like the sort of uh, viral uh post that she did post-trial. So the story, for those who don't know, is um, that she uh, was, um, actually, like, don't, I'm going to not even remember <laughs> the details, but um, Chanel Miller was um, assaulted on the Stanford campus by a student at Stanford at the time, Brock Turner. Um, and the case became quite famous because um, in the trial, Brock Turner was given a very lenient sentence by the judge and the judge said a lot of things about how he didn't want to kind of ruin Brock Turner's life and his promising athletic career. And so it was a case where um, I think a lot of people felt like the judge felt a disproportionate amount of sympathy towards the offender, Brock Turner, as compared to the victim. Um, And I think a lot of the sort of public discourse about it sort of like um, reflected the same kind of uh, sympathy for Brock Turner. And so, yeah, it became a case that kind of like got a lot of media attention. And then um, Chanel Miller published a kind of anonymous, basically victim statement, uh, where she kind of described her experience at the trial. But then later she came, she sort of like um, publicly uh, identified the case with herself and wrote a memoir about it where she kind of like fleshes out her experience um, during the trial and afterwards. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and I guess for like the purposes of the paper, an important feature of the case was that, you know, her being sort of sequestered in the trial setting for an extended period yeah. of time and having that, you know, she was kind of plucked from her normal moral community and like dropped yeah. into this foreign one yeah. where, yeah, her sort of... Um, I mean, I guess this is this is a good way to contrast um, outrage anger with reform anger, um, yeah. which which you do on on page three. I'll read you a, a quote. Um, so you you're suggesting that uh, Miller's anger is not really directed towards the offending party being Brock Turner at all. Her anger is outrage anger, a kind of anger at the state of affairs in which the offense against her is unintelligible as the offense that it is. Um, and I thought that. I mean, I really liked the way you put it there because, um, you know, as you describe in the trial, it it was this kind of what I have to imagine was like a surreal situation where it seemed like um, from from what you describe and what you quote, like no no one in the trial was really even debating like that the assault happened. They were more yeah. of like almost debating whether it was wrong to uh, to a great degree or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's really important because, you know, some of the cases of outrage anger that I'm interested in where I'm sort of drawing from 
the feminist theorist Maria Lugones are cases where there's kind of no uptake, right? So like, you know, take the example of like in the 19, you know, like Mad Men era 1950s <laughs> of a woman was being harassed or assaulted at her job. It was a kind of thing where like, you know, if you complain, you'd be kind of like laughed off or dismissed mm -hmm. because it mm -hmm. wasn't considered a, a, a real wrong. It wasn't mm -hmm. even sort of like, it wouldn't even register as something that like warranted uh, resentment or being upset. Whereas I think things look a little bit different now. And it's actually, I think, part of what makes it harder to kind of identify cases where um, you have this, this sort of conditions under which outrage anger is appropriate. Because, yeah, in Chanel Miller's case, I think there's a sense in which everybody, nobody's denying, you know, nobody's like pretending like or kind of gaslighting her into thinking like nothing bad happened to her or that she was asking for it. I think the, the um, you know, everybody sort of feels bad. Everybody thinks like something very unfortunate happened to her. Everybody acknowledges that it was a case of assault. Um, but what isn't happening in that kind of hermeneutical space that she's in is like, yeah, the recognition that it's a very serious wrong and that she was kind of very clearly the victim. So she wasn't sort of like an equal party or partly responsible for what happened to her. Um, and so it's, it's less about whether or not people are able to recognize it as a case of assault and more about just where the sort of like emotional energy is going in mm -hmm. the case is again, so much of it is going towards Brock Turner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so you use that to kind of make like, to mark this fundamental difference between, I, I take it that, um, reform anger is more of our default kind of type of anger yeah. um and then oftentimes like when it's not received in the way that we want we're kind of we're yeah. almost pushed by the circumstances like into outrage anger i think that's right i mean you know and i don't you know i don't want to sort of overgeneralize, but yeah it does seem right to me that like in general we sort of like immediately resort to hmm. uh Reform anger, like in the in the sort of hope or expectation that it will be taken up, but then if we're if we then come to learn that actually we're not in a space where we're going to get uptake, then I think yeah, we sort of resort to this more extreme measure of outrage anger. Mm -hmm. And so, so like the um, or at least a fundamental difference is that reform anger is um, kind of what you refer to in Strassonian terms as like a reactive attitude. It yeah. is um, it's viewing the other person as kind of like a like a moral equal or an agential equal yeah. in the yeah. sense that you know we're looking to have this like exchange of emotions <clears throat> that that play appropriately off of each other, um, and it has this like. Um, Actually, oh, you, you put it well um, in another quote. Uh, so you say the object of reform anger is the person who has committed some moral violation, uh, but its function is to hold the abuser accountable and to demand that the injustice be addressed. So it's like very, very um, uh, kind of almost it's it's putting forth like a respect for the other person in a way. Um, yeah, like you're you're saying like yeah. we can have this exchange. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, this is something that I think a lot of the literature on, you know, what I call reform anger does really nicely. So, you know, my Aisha Cherry's work, mm -hmm. um, I think recently has kind of like made this point in a lot of different ways where, yeah, there's a kind of like love or respect that you're showing to a person by expressing anger towards them, by holding them accountable, by sort of like demanding better. Because what you're doing is saying, like, I see that you're part of a moral community. I see that you're a sort of like morally responsible agent. And I believe <laughs> that you have the capacity to kind of um, do better um, mm. and yeah, kind of like reform your behavior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, um, and when that doesn't <clears throat> land, then, then you're sort of pushed into this outrage anger, which it seems like kind of as you characterize as more of, it's more of like a turn 
it's kind of interesting because it, it seems like it has a turn inward. Like yeah. you're with you're withdrawing, but it also yeah. seems to have a turn outwards towards like a different moral community. Um, yeah, does that seem yeah. right. I think so. Yeah, because in a way, you're sort of stepping out of the moral community that you find yourself in, and then you know maybe hoping that you find something else outside of that moral community, right? So the idea is you kind of. You know, I think on this sort of Strassonian framework, we're all sort of members of this moral community together. Um, and, you know, for Strassen, there's this sort of participant stance where we relate to each other as members. And then you can kind of also be seen or see other people in this kind of more objective stance. And the thought here is I'm kind of trying to sort of like add some stuff to that framework where actually I think there are these cases where like instead of sort of like, you know, somebody does something terrible and you kind of see them as no longer part of your moral community you're act it's actually you're the one who's kind of like stepping out of the moral community and looking um maybe optimistically for other people who share similar experiences mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it seems like i mean um you know i know i know strawson says that we can kind of do this for like two different reasons there's an abnormality in the circumstances and then there's yeah. an abnormality with the person do you think outrage yeah. anger can can be kind of brought on by both of those uh types of abnormalities as well I mean, honestly, I don't really see it as falling into the objective stance in that way. So I think this is the you know place where like I think Strassen just wasn't sort of thinking about these kinds of cases where you know I don't think that like there's something abnormal about Brock Turner. I mean, actually, it seems like extremely normal for like a college man to assault a woman at a party when they're drunk on a college campus. Like it's actually you know in some ways incredibly normal behavior. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that there, it's like he's incapable of moral reasoning. I think he's young and stupid and raised in like a very bad sort of, uh, toxic culture. Um, and I also, you know, that's kind of important for the paper because I think, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks like, oh, we should just treat him as though he's a monster. Like, I actually think he's probably a pretty typical male college student who, you know, did a kind of horrific thing and didn't take accountability for it. But um, I, I think that's like hardly unusual. And so, you know, um, this is important because, you know, I, so I'm actually writing a kind of follow-up paper to this paper now where I actually think, you know, in some ways about the like inverse <laughs> kind of argument. So I'm thinking about cases where, um, you should have empathy for people who've treated you very badly. So think, mm. thinking about cases where, um, you should have empathy because that empathy is going to help you get rid of your resentment towards them. And that's like a positive thing. Hmm. Um, and I'm thinking about cases of abuse, you know, or like very serious mistreatment. And so all of that's to say, like, I think there's a reasonable stance to have on which like Brock Turner actually deserves empathy. He deserves sort of like support and love and care and the opportunity to kind of like reform his behavior. It just shouldn't hmm. come from Chanel Miller because hmm. that's at too high a cost to her. Mm-hmm. And so for her, if it serves her to sort of see him as though he's, you know, not really, you know, for her to not see him in the kind of participant stance or for her to not see him as a member of her moral community, I think that's, you know, important and valuable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's really interesting. Uh, it it kind of makes me think of, um, I think that Gary Watson says like that sense of there, but for the grace of God, go I. Like we're all... Yeah in some yeah. deep sense, like really lucky not to have, yeah. you know, whatever it was like bad formative circumstances sure. or, um, or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 yeah that's, that's really interesting. Um, um, yeah, I was, I was, um, 
curious then if I was understanding. So, you, so you, like you said, you um, you draw on the work of um, Maria Lugones a lot in the paper, and I I wanted to tell you my interpretation of first order and second order anger and what the debate is, and then see sure. what you thought of my yeah yeah okay, yeah, 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 okay, yeah yeah cool because this was um. Uh, in the seminar, this was this was like one of the um, main points of debate is like, what's what is at stake between? OK, cool. So, yeah, cool. OK, so I'll, I'll read a quote from you first, um, Okay. just so people know what I'm talking about. So uh, Lugones distinguishes between what she calls first order anger and second order anger. For her, first order anger is an anger that has a communicative intent and does or does not succeed in getting uptake within a particular world of sense. Whereas second order anger presumes, I'm sorry, presupposes worlds of sense against which the anger constitutes an indictment or a rebellion, worlds of sense from which one needs to separate. So I was thinking about like, okay, so in both of those contexts, what is at stake? And it seems like um, maybe the difference there is like uh, in in first order anger, both both parties agree what's wrong or what would be wrong, but are mm-hmm. disagreeing about what the facts are or sort of like what happened. Um, yeah. In yeah. Nussbaum's terms, like the conversation is over whether anger is well-grounded, but yeah. In um, when second order anger arises, everyone is, and this is kind of um, illustrated in the case of Chanel Miller, everyone agrees what happened, but the debate mm-hmm. is over whether it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, and I, I, and honestly, like I, I read that this was one of those like awesome moments when you're reading something and then you realize, oh, wow, like this is, this has been, um, this like inchoate thing that I've recognized for years, but like never thought about it explicitly. Oh, awesome. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I think uh, it's a really, yeah. I think it's such a helpful distinction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it, I mean, already just reading that and like thinking of just past like experiences yeah. of mine. Yeah. There, there's like a particular fury that when you are forced into like this second order anger, um, that, that it, like evokes in me because yeah. I, it's 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 there there's almost a sense in which like it's you can find a sense of peace with okay well like we both agree that if i did lie to you that would have been wrong but like we're just debating over whether what i said was a lie you know what i mean like that's 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 at least a reasonable disagreement but when you and i both agree on exactly what happened and you're just like you know what i don't think that you know like i don't think that was wrong and i'm like exactly yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And I think, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a special kind of theory, I think, because you're sort of being treated as though your uh, emotions are kind of unintelligible, right? Like, and, you know, you see this a lot in cases of abuse where the person's kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're or like you're kind of overreacting or, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not an appropriate response to what's happening or something Mm -hmm. where it's not like I didn't mean to hurt you or, you know, like you misheard. You know, it's just a very different kind of, um, I think discussion mm-hmm. and sort of like yeah treating you as though um the emotions that you're having are just kind of like completely off base mm-hmm. and it's just it, it's also like so uh when the conversation gets to that point it's so disheartening because you like you're losing sight of the success conditions of like the disagreement like yeah. at least we can figure out you know yeah. well this rarely happens but like you can figure out like whether yeah. or not something was well grounded, but like if you're just if you're yeah. like inhabit- inhabiting separate moral communities, like there's there's yeah. a, not a lot of room for um, resolution there. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also, again, it can be sort of damaging to how you see yourself, your own kind of self-conception, if you're trying to convince somebody, you know, if the, if the argument you're having is like trying to convince somebody else that you deserve like care and respect, <laughs> that, mm. that could actually be really damaging to you to have to sort of be in a position of being on the defense about something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's like a fundamental way in which like this shouldn't be yeah. part of the debate. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, um, so when uh, you refer to Lugones use of, of um, uh, worlds of sense, yeah, I, I interpreted that this was another thing we were debating in the seminar. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I interpreted worlds of sense as sort of, um, like worlds of value or maybe specifically like values relevant to that disagreement. Uh Um, I, but I, but I didn't know how you were interpreting the, the worlds of sense. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, like I'm not a Lugonus scholar and I also, you know, it's, there's a sort of tricky translation that happens when you're sort of reading work that's not in the analytic tradition that you're sort of trying to translate it into the analytic tradition. And so I, you know, I don't take a sort of like very clear stand about this. I think I use the idea of like a kind of hermeneutical space where I have in mind something like the thing you're describing of just like set of sort of beliefs, ideologies, assumptions, values, all that kind of stuff that just sort of shapes how we interpret the world around us. Hmm. Um, and that can include all kinds of things, including, yeah, what, what we think matters or, yeah. Okay. So that, so that makes me wonder if the kind of like, dominant world of sense can that so so i think all of your examples involved one person in a larger group of people but i was wondering if the dominant world of sense could also it doesn't have to be sort of like a like a um a numbers difference it could be a difference in other ways too so like in a relationship Maybe if like yeah. one person kind of holds more of the cards or something. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, then the dominant world of sense can actually be located in just one other person. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it's like I, in this paper, I don't really think about the case of just like one-on-one sort of intimate relationships. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, um, so yeah, I'm interested in kind of like, you know, thinking about sort of like more political kind of context where there's kind of dominant group and a sort of less dominant group. Um, but yeah, you can imagine, I think the same dynamics playing out even in, mm. a, you know, like a one-on-one relationship where there's just like power dynamics in place. Cause you, you know, it's mm. the, the phenomenon I'm describing of every danger, I think it's like something that people do experience like one-on-one as well. Um, but I think there are often these kind of like background social forces at play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. And also, I mean, I can imagine um, like a circumstance where you are in a a larger group, but then having like a conversation with one member of that group or something, and they're like, they would be inheriting almost like the the power of the group in that situation. So you would still be. I think so. I mean, I think you see that a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And it seems like, um, so, okay, so. So then experiencing outrage, anger in those contexts is sort of, um, it involves this like withdrawal from the aim of even sort of like, I mean, the way I read, the the way I read it is like, you're, 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 when you turn inwards, like you're giving up on the aim of um, reactively exchanging with these people. Like you just, you have to pull back um, 
because yeah. you're realizing like this, this, this anger, like doesn't just, it does has no uptake. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then no, when you, yeah, oh yeah, no, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 please. Yeah. So, so then, so, so that's the turn inward. And then it seems like there's also, and I wonder if this is a constitutive part of outrage anger for you, if, or if it's like a correlate, um, that you, that you also have this sort of like turn inwards, but then this turn, I don't know, like backwards or outwards or something like calling out to what you hope is, um, a shared world of sense. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think of outrage anger as like particularly constructive, <laughs> but I do think that's the effect often, right. Of like okay. expressing okay. a sort of outrage anger is that you, you know, it's recognized by other people in kind of similar spaces. And, you know, if you think about sort of like consciousness raising circles in the past, or even, you know, now you see this in the sort of like collective expressions of anger on social media, like the Me Too movement, I think, you know, in a way, the Me Too movement was just a sort of like group expression of outraged anger. And it's, you know, it's sort of like, it built momentum and it built sort of like attention, mm. you know, grew because I think like, sort of women <laughs> heard the outrage of other women and kind of like felt seen and heard and then mm. you know, want to kind of express it back mm -hmm. I, yeah i mean um that that makes me wonder so so um like reform anger <clears throat> has this really clear it, i'm wondering if if reform anger has more of a cognitive element baked into it than outrage anger does. <laughs> yeah. Where like reform anger explicitly, even the experience of it um, yeah. seems to have um, almost like an aim to it. Whereas yeah. outrage anger seems to be a little bit more of the, the impulse, like, okay, this is like messed up. Like yeah. kind of like the burn it down impulse almost. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. You know, and it's not something I really talk about in the paper, but, um, you know, if you think about outrage anger as, you know, the reform anger is sort of like working within the sort of existing mm. moral community and there's sort of like rules in place. Right. So like we have a sort of idea of like what it, you know, and like this is on the sort of Strassonian framework, but like, if you think like there are certain actions and behavior. So if you think, you know, our relationships with each other are constituted by a set of sort of like obligations and expectations and whatever. And then there's sort of like kind of clear rules or norms or, you know, um, scripts for like when you kind of violated your obligations or duties towards a person. And then there's sort of like, you know, often like recourse, right? There's sort of like expectations about what repair looks like. I think there's so we have these kind of like established norms within a moral community um, that I think reform anger is often sort of like appealing to in various ways. And, you know, whether that's because it's more sort of intrinsically cognitive or whether it's just because there's like more stuff mm. out there that you can kind of latch on to, I think that that is right. Um, whereas I think, yeah, outrage anger kind of has this sort of world building quality, right? It's sort of like you're trying to like create something new, like a different kind of moral community. And so I think that just there's less <laughs> kind of mm. like machinery in place to appeal to. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that, 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 that tracks with my experience as well. I think that, I think yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, uh, so, okay, this was, um, this was another thing that I was really curious about this kind of, um, the conversation between, so, okay, so you kind of find yourself in this, um, um, moral community that is completely alien to you. And, um, I mean, it seems like you kind of have several ways to go. You can, um, 
dive into and fully embrace like this outrage anger, or you can adopt more of like kind of a cold um, objective attitude. And I was curious, I mean, so you, you say that like one of the main upsides of uh, outrage anger specifically is that it really does kind of like close off your, uh, your empathy towards the other person. And, um, and you quote, um, there's this really, uh, I, this, I loved the way that, um, Bailey, uh, phrases it, uh, uh, the, the quote is that, um, uh, central to empathy is the ability to imaginatively take up another person's perspective to feel their reasons as reasons, which I Mm -hmm. thought was a really helpful way of putting it. Yeah. 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 So I, completely see how and maybe you can just explain this for for people um so so how how does um outrage anger kind of shut down that uh sense of empathy when you adopt it towards someone yeah i mean you know i don't say much about the mechanism because honestly it's just not what i (laughs) like really (laughs) know anything about but the thought is just i mean and i think this is you know something where there's a fair bit of empirical evidence the thought is just when we feel resentment or anger or outrage like it's there's actually not a lot of space um to also at the same time feel empathy and i think vice versa mm-hmm. so the way i tend to think about like empathy and anger is they're kind of like filters that we can put on uh where we sort of see the same set of information but like in a kind of different light so we're sort of like taking in certain things but not seeing other things as clearly where it's kind of like where we're focusing our attention <laughs> Um, and so I think, yeah, empathy focuses our attention on, you know, a lot of stuff about the other person, right? Like seeing their actions and behaviors as making sense to them. And then so in some ways making sense to us as well. Um, whereas anger is sort of like, to me, a kind of refusal to like really let that information in. So to really think about like why Brock Turner might have acted the ways he did, what are the social forces that kind of like um, made him think that it was acceptable or okay. You're just kind of like, I'm not try to take in any of that information yeah yeah i mean that's i was i was thinking about this because like i i was imagining or or just thinking about like my own kind of um situations in which like um like especially with so my extended family is like very very um socially conservative and and um uh, evangelical Christians, like the kind of like homosexuality is wrong kind of christians um yeah and so like going going like especially like in high school and stuff you know going to those family events was like this situation where like there was just i I had zero chance of any uptake like on you know what i mean on on these issues um and so it seems like i mean i i feel like early on i would adopt this really kind of sense of like outrage anger um and just kind of be thinking to myself, like, this is fucked up. Like, this is like, wh- what, like, why can't, you know, um, they see that th- this is just like a completely insane worldview um, to have. But there was a notable cost there that I don't know if you address. And I'm curious what you think about um, that. It you know, Maybe this is more of like a confession than anything else, but it was hard for me to keep outrage, anger up and humming internally but not have that bleed out into kind of my external um behavior whereas the adoption of something more akin to like an objective attitude just like a cold almost like turning off of reactivity really allowed me to sort of like get through 
um, those situations like with much more grace. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I mean, I take it the question is like, you know, outrage might be one way to kind of like block your ability to sort of like engage or feel empathy, but like maybe just like shutting down, like maybe just like a sort of like different kind of like distance or refusal is like a better mechanism. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, and I don't know if it's like sorry, there's a lot that... of dog activity in the back. It's all good. What what kind are they? Uh, so there's my dog, and uh, she has a friend visiting. And so, oh, so that's she's cute. A, um, a husky lab mix, and then the other dog is like I think a Grand Pyrenees. Something. It's he's a rescue. So oh. yeah. Oh, they're very. We cute. Really love each other, but of course, anytime you're on Zoom, they decide it's time to play. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No worries. Um. Um. Uh, what was I? Oh, oh, um, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, oh, I, I don't know that I would like make the claim that one is like somehow better, but, but maybe like in some circumstances, one is like more wise to adopt yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I guess again, like maybe I would, um, sort of question, you know, sort of think about the distinction between like feeling and expressions of anger mm-hmm. and then also just like, the different ways that anger can look because I kind of wonder if like the thing you're feeling isn't a version of outrage it's just one that's causing you to sort of like pull away and feel distance or withdraw as opposed to sort of like because you know the the problem is right like if you're in that sort of environment and you you express outrage in a different kind of way like hmm. it just it is going to feel like engagement right it's actually going to be read as uh, as reform anger right it's going to be read as like you want to have an argument or a conversation and that's actually what you're exactly trying to avoid right it's like you're actually gonna, like separate yourself from the kind of like world in which um this conversation makes sense so you know i don't know and you know again i i and i yeah i sort of i i feel the worry of like does it really make sense to call the thing that's happening with you outraged in those cases when it really seems more like a kind of strategic withdrawal um but yeah i, I sort of i wonder whether actually it's, it is a way of kind of feeling outrage and expressing it in a way that's actually allowing you to step away yeah. And then it's the kind of thing where, like, you might actually express that outrage differently in a different space, right? Like, you might sort of then, like, talk to your close friends and be like, I yes. can't believe that. Yeah. That's exactly how it works. Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and then, again, it's like Chanel Miller isn't, you know, when she's expressing anger, she's not doing it at Brock Turner. And I think that's, like, yes. the kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, um, I, because there's, um, you know, it's, I, I think you, you quoting other people, um, I can't find it in the paper, but, but there's this idea that like almost intrinsically to, to take this, even like objective empathizing with someone else is this like almost invitation to, um, to lose your outrage even like at the situation or that the situation is happening because you sort of like see them as, you know, whatever it may be like a mere byproduct of something, or, or if you see their reasons, like as reasons, then it's just, it naturally like diminishes anger. And, um, maybe it naturally, my thought was like, maybe it naturally diminishes anger, but I don't know that it naturally diminishes, uh, your, I don't want to phrase it like, your ability to hang on to the values that you have. Um, it, it seems like it might depend on what we say, you know, the, the quote was, um, uh, um, 
from Bailey, like seeing their reasons as reasons. Yeah. And it, I wonder if it might turn on like what we mean by that, because if, if you see their <laughs> reasons as the reasons that were relevant to them, then yeah. I don't know that it does really necessitate like a loss of your own values. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And, you know, this gets to like, you know, the paper that I'm working on now where I'm really interested in sort of literature on forgiveness where there's this kind of like classic puzzle about forgiveness, which is like if you had good reasons to be angry in the first place and nothing <laughs> undermines or changes those reasons, then like why would you ever forgive a person? Um, and, you know, there's different strategies that people take. And the strategy that I sort of suggest is that actually feeling empathy towards a person and seeing their reasons as reasons kind of puts you in a different stance in relation to the person. So you're still in the sort of participant stance, but you're no longer in this kind of retributive stance where you're evaluating a person's actions with respect to whether they treated you in the ways that they owed you. You're actually evaluating their actions and behaviors in terms of something else. And I call it like the relational stance, which is the stance where you're thinking about whether you want to continue to be in a sort of relationship of shared vulnerability with the person. Um, and that's important because, yeah, I think you're right that like, you know, it, in principle, it should be possible for you to feel empathy towards a person, see their reasons as reasons, not have that sort of like change or revise or undermine any of the reasons that supported your resentment, um, but for you to kind of be able to hold both things. I think what's going on in the kind of outrage cases that I'm interested in is because of the sort of background conditions where there's this sort of overwhelming pressure on, say, a victim of sexual assault to kind of defer to the experience and concern for the offender, that it's like really hard to hold the sort of seeing their reasons as reasons alongside the seeing them as having reasons to um, hold on or to, you know, to feel like they deserved better treatment because the background context is one that's kind of overwhelmingly pushing them in the in the, in the direction of only caring about the offender. And so I think when you are in a situation where those background conditions are different, so I think about, in this other paper, I think about the case of like parental abuse, so a parent abusing their child, but in a situation where, you know, it's a parent from a kind of marginalized background and like they're experiencing a lot of kind of financial stress and racism mm -hmm. and all kind of stuff. And so you can kind of understand why a parent under these like extreme stressors might actually not be able to treat their child in the ways that they deserve. And I think you can also understand why a child in that situation might really want a relationship with their parent despite all of that, because they're both from these marginalized communities. They actually really need like familial relationships, um, you know, uh, to sort of like survive in the world. And so, yeah, I think just thinking about different background conditions, I think actually really changes how we think about the interaction of empathy and anger. Yeah, totally. Um, so maybe we'll wrap up on, on this um, question because I was, I mean, like your your paper, in a way, like blurred even more for me. This um, yeah. debate over like intrinsic versus instrumental reasons, and yeah. not blurred in a bad way, but like it just it highlights how like messy intrin like you know just inherently it is. Yeah. Um, so basically, I mean, for people who might not know, like instrumental reasons to it to um, to have a certain reaction, emotional reaction, are uh, reasons like in virtue of other consequences um good or bad and then if something is a is an intrinsic reason to have an emotional reaction it's just because it's fitting to what is actually yeah. what it's responding to yeah. um and i <laughs> i i i just i am so that's like the thing that i'm kind of still trying to work out from the class like yeah. that conversation is one that seems really almost intractable to me um, yeah and i was yeah. curious like how you know in your 
that in this work and then further work, like you're viewing those concerns around, around emotional reactions. Yeah. So what is the concern exactly? Like, what are you, where do you feel like? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so the concern is like how to weigh the two um, types of resources. So, um, so I like one, one um, kind of paper that I've been working on is um, investigating whether actually um, uh, Chris Franklin and Amias Renovasan, if you read her in a certain light, the aptness of yeah. anger paper um, can, can be like read at least to be providing yeah, yeah. this like argument that yeah. anger is the only um, yeah. uh, fitting reaction to injustice. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that. And yeah. so like, I, I argue that a combination of grief and disappointment can yeah. do all of the intrinsic work. Now yeah. it may be instrumentally better, you know, for, for in sure. different cir- um, circumstances or whatever, but yeah, my, like my, my worry is like, okay, well, anger clearly like does have this intrinsic value, but if it's, yeah. If it if it's not the only emotional reaction that can do that intrinsic work, then I wonder if that kind of pushes us back into trying to think about things in like it feels really cold and like robotic yeah. to think about things in terms of consequences, but maybe like this just this sense of like what is it wise to do in certain yeah. situations? Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. I mean I sympathetic to this and actually I sort of um okay so you know my take is right like when we think about emotions we sort of think about the kind of aptness conditions which are typically in terms of like what the emotion is appraising or mm-hmm. you know evaluating about the world and then we think about the sort of action tendency like what does emotion sort of like get us to do in the world um and I think this sort of important and so you know because there are these kind of aptness conditions for emotions we can think of emotions as like rational or irrational so like you know, if you're like afraid of like a rubber snake, like that's a case where like your fear is kind of appraising this as a dangerous situation. But in this case, your fear is like not appraising it correctly. And so we can say like, that's actually an irrational emotional response. And if you're somebody who has a phobia of like rubber snake, you know, any, you know, cause I have, I have a friend who's like terrified of snakes. And so like mm-hmm. even seeing just like a picture of a snake, just like she gets like, you know, she freaks out. Um, and so that's a case where like, you might want to take steps to like get rid of that emotion because it's not rational. Um, but I think even in the case of um, emotions where they're rational, right? So where they're, uh, they're apt or fitting responses or sort of correctly evaluating the world, I actually think that we are not compelled to feel them. And I think actually in some, on some level, we kind of know this about emotions. Like this is the way that emotions I think are different from beliefs is like if we're presented with a bunch of evidence about something we're sort of rationally compelled to believe it. Whereas in the case of emotions, I think if there's a good reason to feel a particular emotion, we're not compelled, I think, to feel that emotion. It's rationally fitting, permissible, acceptable, you know, appropriate to feel the emotion, but that doesn't take us all the way towards um, it being compulsory. And that's actually, I think, important in cases like the cases I'm interested in with empathy and anger, because I think there are cases where so, you know, in the paper I'm working on now, I think, you know, I'm interested in cases where it's appropriate to feel resentment. It's also appropriate to feel empathy, but you're not really going to be able to feel both at the same time because mm-hmm. you feel empathy is going to crowd out the resentment. If you feel the resentment, it's going to crowd out the empathy. And I actually think these are cases where it's rationally permissible for us to decide which of the things is more important to us. And as you're saying, like, I think there are cases where resentment is not going to serve us because we might want to have a relationship with the person and resentment is not going to get us there. Mm -hmm. Um, We might want to sort of restore trust and comfort and safety and all those kinds of things. 
Um, but then likewise, I think in the case of Chanel Miller, like she has good reasons to feel outraged. And so she shouldn't be listening to the people who tell her like, here are all the sort of like therapeutic tools that will help you get rid of your anger because actually might be the best thing for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, it, and so, you know, what you're sort of pointing out is like, sometimes there are these kind of instrumental reasons to maybe question whether even if the emotion is fitting or appropriate whether we should take steps to kind of get rid of it or focus our attention on other stuff and cultivate Mm -hmm. other emotions Mm -hmm. yeah especially if if there's nothing intrinsically lost um with responding in in other emotional ways yeah Yeah. um yeah uh well okay we're we're coming up on an hour so i want to let you go but i I really really um enjoyed the conversation thank you so much yeah no it was my pleasure thank you so much and yeah i mean it's you know it's real such an honor and pleasure to have someone read my work uh so thank you yeah of course um so this uh so this paper is is um on it was published in um philosopher's imprint which is completely Mm -hmm. open access right so anyone can get this okay cool cool yeah um well, it's extremely readable, um, even as a philosophy paper. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I recommend that people read it. I'll provide a link um to the paper in the in the description of this. Uh and then as far as um forthcoming work, where can people kind of like follow you and what you're up to? Yeah, I have a website that's just my name. It's pretty I'm pretty Googleable <laughs> for better and for worse. Um so my website is probably the best source of information. It's never fully up to date but i will be updating it soon um and then i i'm also on twitter again under my name it's pretty easy to find i don't post much on there though so it's not a great yeah. source that's probably wise <laughs> yeah i think so i think yeah. so <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay well um stay on the call for a minute if you would um but i'll stop the recording and again thank you so much for doing this of course yeah